Welcome to What CEOs Talk About. Do you wonder what CEOs talk about behind closed doors? How they bring their vision to reality? How do they overcome and succeed through adversity? We share that and so much more with each episode. Now, let's get started with the show. Hello, everybody. My name is Martin Hunter. I am the host of What CEOs Talk About, where we translate strategy into frontline operations. Today, we've got the class clown, the comedian, Ryan Sharthill, if we want to use the proper Irish accent to pronounce his last name. So uh, there is no H in it, a Sharthill. Right. So and then the R, like most Irish people don't don't pronounce it. He is the founder of Positive Adventures, 60 years, 16 years in the making. Correct. He is also the president of the EO San Diego chapter for the past seven years. So EO stands for Entrepreneur Organization, for those who don't know that. Um, and he is a Renaissance reader. He's in the pre-show. Ryan told me how he reads books. Damn, you you. The uh, the skill of multitasking does not as get, exist, but your ability to switch from one book to another like you do is absolutely crazy. So I can't wait to dive down deeper. So thank you, Ryan, for being on the show. Yep. Thanks for being here. My parole officer said I had to sit in, so I had to do some sort of community service. You know, I figured I'd help internationally speak and try to get a little major sheriff out of the deal. Here we go. Uh, Ryan, what? is the title of the show for today well i believe we could probably call it the spirit of business and looking at kind of the more metaphysical approaches to how you choose to run your business there there a long time ago they would say the whole purpose of business is to derive profit but i think that a lot of people recognize that you can actually get profit by focusing on uh, a different kind of spirit for example that payroll company that offered a living wage of $70,000 or more. He was uh, you know, shouted down as a socialist and that it would hurt his business, but basically it TEDxed his company or whatever it may be. It got him a lot of great publicity. And basically he was just operating from a place of spirit there, which was counterintuitive to mm-hmm. what a lot of business books would say. But at the end of the day, the new economy, the future that we're moving into doesn't look like the business of the past. And Correct. people are really looking for uh, more purpose, freedom, autonomy. And if they have the difference between two companies and one pays even more, they're going to choose the one that has a, a greater social component. And Correct. that's demonstrated in study after study that ultimately people are willing to pay more um, or get paid less in order to be a part of something that is shifting and transitioning where humanity could in fact arrive and will with the likes of you and me, sir. The spirit of business. So true. I mean, the. Uh when you look at the age of piracy in the 1770s and stuff uh, that we have a business of, of transferring goods from, you know, uh, taking slaves from Africa, moving them to the Caribbeans and then picking up stuff. And, you know, piracy came about and there is a good show on Netflix. I think it's the Republic of the piracy or something like that, where actual people followed a value and a code more than business. So to the to your point, go on Netflix and and I think it's called the 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 Republic of Piracy or anything like that. So anyways, cool. So Ryan, tell us tell us your story. So way back in 19 when Ryan was well, a lad just, from the well, Irish from Irish descent family. Let me just throw a little Renaissance talk in there. The song Amazing Grace was written by um, a slave trader who was taking a ship full of humans across the ocean. And he was overwhelmed by this feeling of grace and shame and everything and wrote that song. You could probably look that up. Uh, it's out there. So I'll take you way back as a storyteller. I was sitting with my (laughs) Uncle John when I was 12 years old in the gun room. I'm from New Hampshire, from a town founded in 1623, up in a farm in Maine. And my Uncle John was skipping scotch, and he said, I'm going to tell you the story of our family. And I said, all right, I'm all ears. And he said, a long time ago, three brothers left Ireland. They were on the way to New England. And one brother uh, decided to go to Canada, and one brother decided to go into Boston, and one brother fell in love with a Protestant girl, and the other two brothers wouldn't let him get off the ship. And the only where the only it's true story. This is all true. The only story was that they had he had to go to uh, Australia. So my family line 
has been traced by three great aunts to the Shortles in northern, eastern Canada, the ones in New England, and then there's a group of us that went to Australia, all based on these three. Now follow me on this. So the one that shows up in the Boston says there's too many, too many, too many Irish there. So he goes up to Portland. He doesn't know what to do, so he goes to a church. And he sits there and he prays and he tries to figure out what he's going to do. He sees this woman. He falls in love. He can't believe it. He goes back down to Boston. He gets some work. He makes just enough money for a train ride back up, goes all the way back up there, and she's not there. <clears throat> but for nine months, as my uncle sips his scotch, as I wrangle my hands wondering as a 12-year-old boy up in the farmhouse gun room surrounded by old uh, hunting rifles. And uh, so he goes back for nine months. And then he decides, I'm only going to go one more time. I've spent my entire year investing in seeing the love of my life. And he goes back up there on the final time. And all of his friends think he's crazy. And there she is. And he says to this woman, I, I can't believe you're here. And he says to the, to the man that she's with, her father, he says, I, I, my, my name's uh, Joseph Shortle. I want to marry your daughter. And he said, you're nothing but an Irish immigrant. You get out of here. You know, we've been gone. Uh, we only come here for whatever yeah, vacation. Yeah. And so my great, great, great grandfather, whatever it may be, he goes back down to Boston. He goes back up again. And then this whole week, he's he's so busy and he's just just enamored by this love for the woman. And so then he he goes back to the church and he says, my name is Mr. Shortle. I'm asking your your daughter's hand in marriage. And he says, I told you once already, immigrant, you'll never do it. And he said, well, let me present to you this hope chest. And he presented to her the most exquisite craftsman designed hope chest, woodworking. I come from a long line of craftsmen. And the, uh, the, the gentleman looks at it and he studies it. And he says to him, I've never seen finer woodworked by human hands. And I know if you're that quality, then my daughter will always be well taken care of. And I say to my Uncle John, whatever happened to the hope chest? <laughs> and he goes like this. It's the one you've been playing in ever since you were a little kid. You used to oh, pull out wow. all the blankets and you and your sister would play in and out of that chest. That's the reason why all of us are here today. So that's where I came from, bro. Sweet. Let me hear about your family history. Mine is Scottish, so there's murder and sheep involved in it. <laughs> oh, goodness. But yeah, I came from the great state of New Hampshire. Live for your die is our state motto. I've lived, lived that way. The short story is I drove with my mother and brother to take him out to California when I was 13, crossing the United States, opened my eyes uh, as a Sagittarius and fellow traveler of my lineage. I basically discovered that there was a whole world out there. So when I was 16, I followed some rock and roll bands around the country between summer of junior and senior year. Uh, shortly thereafter, I went to Europe and traveled all over Europe. And then eventually, after being a school teacher and making it to you know 50 countries on six continents, I ended up in San Diego, had a job. Uh, the job kind of dried up. And then the only time in my life I was on unemployment, I used those unemployment checks and I started a business out of a garage, which now does multiple millions of dollars deploying service projects all across America, doing corporate team development, staff training, outdoor education and rites of passage with kids, really trying to focus on the spirit of what it means to be human and what it means to have a business that I can use as a delivery for that spirit. Done. Bosscast is done. There you go. Full circle. <laughs> Done. Wait, 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 12 minutes. There you go, folks, that you've got Ryan's vision on the spirit of business and where it derives from. So if you open the chest, there is spirit. That is such a wonderful story, Ryan. Thank you very much. I'm a firm believer in storytelling because we translate values. We translate history we translate forward projections of how to act today and tomorrow through those lovely stories. Now, is it embellished? Yes. Do we talk about all the, the, the characters and all that good stuff? It, it doesn't matter. The matter is how do you, how does it relate? How do you make it beautiful enough? Just as looking as a flower to say, wow, that, that is impressive. And that is worth mentioning. So thank you for this lovely story. Now, let's, let's break apart your title, spirit. What do you mean when, when we say spirit? What are you referring to? 
Well, you know, they did all these studies back in the day. When a person died, they would weigh them beforehand and after to see if there was a weight change. Seven you know, grams? All, yeah, we, we all talk about, you know, what is it? You know, when religions, they might talk about the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but basically, the spirit can be multifaceted and multidimensional. It can be the spirit of what your mother and father taught you and your 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 family values. It could be in the metaphysical sense and depending on your religion, the incarnate, your recreation of your life over and over, having a human experience, uh, attempting to discover and uh, release past traumas as well as carry your ancestral gifts forward. It could just be your nature. You know, mm -hmm. everybody knows that that friendly person that whenever they walk in, you feel calmer, you feel more grounded, more centered. Maybe it was your grandmother. Maybe you're thinking of that person right now in your home. Uh, spirit is all encompassing. But what I like to think of it as is kind of the internal reflection of what motivates you, what you see. And for, for those who have done uh, some deep reflection and opportunity to discover more facets of their being beyond the Kraft macaroni and cheese and parking tickets and the bills mm. that we have to pay. I believe there's so much more to our existence than is oftentimes let on. And, and how history, so I grew up poor. And I'm going to say poor because it's not poor because I don't think we could afford the R at the end of poor. So yet there's always food on the table. There was now, don't get me wrong. My dad was uh, alcoholic, which I think he's like 40 years sober, but still back then, you know, um, and having said that created who the person I am about being resourceful, about being witty, about being able to tell stories and, and bullshit my way around certain, you know, <laughs> events that I had created. Now I look at my kids and you go, okay, how do I apply that? If yet I want to give everything that I can to my kids. And my wife and I have come to an agreement that they go to public school. They get an allowance for work that they do. If they don't work, they don't get it. Even though I have more money than I can spare with them, we choose not to and ensure that they understand the values of wanting and needing and being kind to other people. So that, I think that's, you know, when you talk about spirit, then you can apply that same principle to businesses, right? You can say, what is it that we're offering more than just widgets? Widgets is a result or service is a result of what you want to do, right? So give me some, how did that spirit of business come about for you in, in your life? When did you realize you go, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. How did it come about? Tell us another beautiful story, Ryan. Sure. Well, first and foremost, similar. I grew up with not a lot of resources. Uh, I'm the youngest of five kids. My mom was hospitalized and dealt with Great Depression. My father was a Vietnam veteran and had to work to basically put food on the table the whole time. We lived in a depressed economy in Upper New Hampshire. I lived just a road or two off of dirt roads. Uh, now, of course, it's way more spendy and gentrified. But back then, no one could find work ever. Mm -hmm. What I learned, though, was that when you needed something, you reached out into your community. Nowadays, mm -hmm. people just go to a Walmart, or worse yet, they just go and order something on Amazon. I've never personally gone online and ordered anything from Amazon. Sure, I've had an assistant order me a book or whatnot, but I tend to go out into my community. I, I take my skateboard down to the post office. And so when I was growing up and you had a flat tire, you didn't just go down to the, 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 the shop to buy the tire. I would go around and shovel driveways and say, hey, you know, I see you've got this old bike in the garage. Can I just take out the tire? It doesn't look like the bike's ever going to run again. And so I learned that uh, people who grew up without a lot of resources, when they need to do a break job, they find their cousin or their uncle or their next door neighbor, and they come over and they help you do that break job. And in that, they'll do one break, but then they watch you do the second break to make sure that you actually aren't using them, but rather learning from them so that once you know how to do a break and someone else asks you, hey, do you know how to do a break job? You do the same thing. And so there was this transition of power that was always happening without necessarily an interchange. Mm -hmm. And that interchange is, is really capitalism. And without it, it's more communal based. And so what I learned from not having a lot of money, like I had to put <clears throat> myself through college, uh, one of the 
there's a few things that we can say about parents. One of the greatest gifts our parents can give us is teaching us how not to live. You know, because if you if you've got a a, a mom who's always high strung and high anxiety and late for church, or, ah, you know, you tell yourself like I'm not going to be late to things and I don't mm-hmm. want to be high strung. But then similarly, they can teach you the qualities and characteristics that are that do make up their spirit. Mm-hmm. And both of my parents were deeply involved in service. My father is lieutenant colonel in the army. My mother was an army nurse. She was also uh, a regular nurse and she worked in mental health and human services. And, and, and that, I think, is what helped guide me. Now, my first girlfriend, she, I asked her out on a date and she said, you can only go out on a date with me if you come down to the soup kitchen with me. And I was like, soup Whoa. Kitchen? I, can, I can pony up for a couple of hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> She said, no, I volunteer uh, at the soup kitchen, you know, and I, you know, I'm 15, 16, trying to get, get, get together with Charlotte and, and I'm down there serving homeless people to like be like, okay, when do we get to make out, you know, <laughs> and something happened there. Something happened. I saw the kindness in the look of people's eyes. I saw the familiarity of people who, who didn't have a lot. And they saw me as someone taking time out of my day to be with them. And that really did trigger something, which re- basically shifted and altered my entire life moving forward. And I even wrote her 25 years later, a really nice letter about that, because I really dedicated my whole life to the spirit of service and giving back, because um, we are not descendants of selfish people. Mm-hmm. We're descendants of people that moved in, in bands Correct. and lived in packed caves and, uh, took turns for security and hunting and looked out for one another. And, and I believe in that quality. We're actually hardwired. Many people don't know this, but we're hardwired to be altruistic. Correct. When, they sh- when they show little toddlers and something drops, they automatically know to help, even if they've never been taught to help or whatnot. And same with monkeys. They do the same. If, if a monkey gets all of the bananas and another sitting there going, this sucks, he walks over and gives them a banana. You know, we've been, the spirit of our community is often beaten out of us because when we are afraid and when we are divided, we're more easily manipulated. And that's where it starts to get into uh, some heavier topics. But ultimately, um, when somebody lends out a helping hand, we're all results of people helping us. You had a coach, you had a mentor, you had a teacher, you had an aunt, you had an uncle that was there when no one else was. Mm-hmm. And in that simple interchange, money was not often exchanged. It was my boss who took me to my first yoga class and said, you're a 19-year-old young buck. If you don't take care of your health, you won't be able to support a family. Mm-hmm. So you need to look out for your nutrition. You need to look out for your body and its performance, and then you'll be able to be successful in life. He wasn't saying, read all these books and figure out how to get all these properties. He was telling me how to meditate, how to drink green juice. And again, that goes back to the spirit. He wasn't making me an employee. He was being a maker of a man. And Mm -hmm. in that gift, I've been able to share those same techniques. Uh, Rady Children's Hospitals, it's the largest children's hospital in the second largest city in the eighth largest economy in the world, San Diego. I had them do all 5,500 employees went through a curriculum that I built that was all based on what my first boss taught me. I taught them yoga, myofascial massage, green juice smoothies, the power of journaling, meditation, and how to do a service project. And it was all because my boss showed me that that's the way that felt most right. Mm -hmm. And he had lived a life of self-reflection and it resonated with me. And then I built a business to reflect that kind of truth and beauty. And unfortunately, that mentor, Pappy Kenny Marazon, is no longer alive. But every day, his spirit is alive with everything we do. And and I hope someday the warehouse worker who I shared all of my tips, tricks, and styles with, he'll be, you know, a 50-year-old one day talking to a young buck or, you know, a young doe. So let me be, so the CEOs that are listening, right? And saying, okay, yeah, I get you. So I give, I give, I give, and the employees just want, want, want. And every time I turn around, somebody wants a raise, somebody wants this, somebody wants that. Yeah, I get you, Ryan. That, that's, that's such bullshit. People just want what's in it for them. What do you say to that? 
Well, that's a great radio station, WIFM. What's in it for me? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so two points. My dad worked at a place one time, and he said if somebody, they, they do raises once a year. And they said if anybody went to them and wanted a raise that wasn't the time of the year, they accepted that as a letter of resignation. Now, oh, that's a good, you know, that's a good lesson. Dink. Well, there you go. I mean, don't forget, I'm also a cutthroat athlete. You know, I played D1 Aussie rules football and rugby. Like I know how to like smash heads if we need to. Um, but more importantly, going back to the spirit of the business, six-time president Ron Harold in San Diego. Now, you had mentioned that I was president for seven years. I'm only president this year, but I've been on boards and serving for seven oh, years. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, what, what, uh, what, what he basically did was to, to share how important you know, the giving back was. That's why he's been in EO Entrepreneurs Organization as, uh, I think, the 22nd member um, the whole time. So I had a really difficult time and I sought out mentorship with my business. And I went to Ron. I said, Ron, you've been in the chapter. You're the one of the longest serving EO members in the entire planet. It's 14,000 members. He was like number 22 or something. That's and, crazy. Right. And San Diego is the sixth largest chapter in the world, I believe. A mega chapter, which, you know, I've had to lead during a pandemic. And anyways, just saying, things. just saying, just, just, just putting that on the side. Hey, by the way, there was a contentious, uh, you know, there was presidency in there too. But what he said was, is people, people want raises, right? And that's okay. But what I want you to do is take out a pen and paper. And you're going to say, if this is the top line revenue at this contribution, at this labor efficiency rate, and if we hit all of these metrics, you get X, Y, and Z. If we don't, we won't hit these things, and some of you will lose your job. And so while the time it took to eat a single breakfast burrito, because Grayson LaFriends was there, he's CEO of Power Digital, um, also in San Diego. He was eating the burrito. I'm watching him chow down, listening to Ron break it down <laughs> as we have this little fire going in this fireplace in La Jolla, California. I walked in with a piece of paper. I slapped it. And I, say, I said... We need to do $2 million in sales with a 15% pre-tax profitability with a labor efficiency rate of 5.3. And if you do that, everyone will get benefits. Everyone will get a raise. Every, and I went right down the list. And it was very clear. And with that clarity, I just tracked with everybody. If you want this, you got to do this. And if you do that, there's more than enough for everyone. Yeah. And so, again, there's some of that transparency, some of that open book accounting. Yeah, they don't need to know about your third of yacht. But they certainly should know if they've, you know, you, you've had a losing month and, you know, there's going to be pay cuts. And so I also said to my team, I said, I'm going to take a pay cut to help all of you because this isn't going to be easy. But when it comes back, I want you to get the reward. I, I think that the there's two things that I really want to put as lessons out there for people who are listening. Two things. One, open book policy. A lot of people go, oh, I don't want to divulge salaries. I don't want to do this. I don't want you look at, you know, um, Scandinavian countries. Uh, salaries are open, right? You always, well, I don't know how much is Ryan making. I'm doing this. I'm that. So it, it creates this amount of doubt when you have an open book. And again, there's a level of detail that is okay at a certain level, right? Given the same job, you should be paid the same amount. There should be no favoritism or preference, man, woman, whatever. The second thing, so that open book is critical for making everybody understand that this is transparency according to leadership. You're showing, so there is no distrust. Here's the books. Here's the books. Here's the organization. I'm not going to look in your personal finance. You're not going to look in my personal finance, but here's where we meet in the middle at this company called company x and here's where it is if we're going to do profit sharing here's what you need to do and here's what i need to do i think that's that is a too many people sit on and don't let go of those p l's and the cash flows and are afraid to show the people and that's that's not cool and the second point what ryan mentioned is i often see people doing the opposite as entrepreneurs they pay themselves less than other people and give everybody a raise. And so what are you doing? If you're giving somebody a raise, then you give yourself a raise. It's a raise across the board. It's not fair for you to be 
underpaid. And I mean, I'm talking about single entity entrepreneurs, right? Not you own a, a consortium of businesses, you, you've got your hold co and then all of you got your ops co, that's different. But if you're a single entity owner, and you've only got one source of income, it comes from your company, it's not fair to you, your wife, your kids, and your partner that you should pay and give an update to everybody else without treating yourself. I think that, well, that goes both ways. About, the other thing about that too is, is if you don't pay yourself a fair market wage, however you structure it, then your business is not being built to sell. Correct. And so what a lot of people will do is just take enough expenses to get by. Maybe they're only paying themselves $30,000, $40,000, but that, did, that uh, then alters the correct pricing strategy. It also alters the value of the company if somebody else came in, if you got hurt and had to step out, maybe you would need to pay that person 110. Uh-huh. That then affects the bottom line. And you know, uh, I'm a, a global entrepreneur organization trainer for the accelerator program. So that's early stage startups, 250 to a million. And I train all over the world talking to these CEOs about making sure you have a, str- a, a clear strategic plan. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people just kind of go into business and they're wondering what happened or they wondered what just happened. And then there are those that go in and make it happen, right? There's the three. There's those that make it happen, those that let it happen, and those that wonder what just happened. <laughs> and if you want to be the person that made it happen, and you do that by having a strong and consistent, clear plan. And in the book, Double Double, uh, it talks about the painted picture, about setting out a vision and a strategy. And when you sit with it, 90 plus percent of what happens in a vivid vision will happen based on all of the studies. Mm -hmm. And so you can sit there and articulate in writing and share with your clients and share with your employees and share with your friends where you're headed, what you're intending to do. Then that sets uh, rockets of desire for things to metaphysically happen and be in in the behind the scenes to allow that kind of growth to occur. And, And that's really what CEOs need to be thinking about. Where do you want to go? Do you just want a cash generating system that doesn't necessitate your presence? Do you want to be, you know, swashbuckling CEO and involved in every single big sale? You can do whatever you want because you have the power as the co-creator to determine, do you want three cabins or do you want one high rise apartment? You know, Mm -hmm. and what happens though, is you need to take the time and hurry up and write down that goal because then you'll be more likely to get there. Write it down. The, uh, when I take a company through the first thing that I always say is we've, I've changed the vision mission statement around to saying, okay, what is the just cause of the company? And I believe that that's very similar to spirit. Mm -hmm. So what is your just cause? The purpose is easy. So, you know, a positive adventure, you provide services to businesses for retreats and and training and that's the that's the purpose of it what is the true just cause what do you want to deliver how do you want to impact humanity and that is a lot of people struggle they go why do you want to need a just cause because you need to create a circle of safety for people to trust in your ability to lead and a lot of ceos are not good leaders let's face it mm-hmm. and and the ability to pay yourself a right amount so you can get the fuck out of the way, pardon my language, that if you can't lead people and, and you don't have to be an extrovert to be a leader. I know a lot of good introverted leaders, uh, you know, you, you better know your shit, how to lead people or get out of the way. And that's well, sometimes getting out of the way is the best form of leadership. And exactly. In I pr- predominantly, a lot of my clients and a lot of my industry is is women led and you know i thought it would make more sense given a lot of the people at my business are women that i should have a female ceo and so melissa j cox lopez it was voted most admired ceo in the san diego chapter in 2016 she had a big exit she lived down the street her birthday was the same birthday as my brother her son is the same birthday as my daughter it seemed like it was a good <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> The tea leaves said that this would be a good human being. We get along great. My brother was my best friend. Uh, rest in peace. And I, I, I replaced myself. You know, I had carried the business as far as I could. And I have two small children and I'm a single dad. And I knew that it would be better for the organization and the people involved if I focused on doing pickups and drop-offs and being there for my children than just grinding out another sale. And she has a strong background in marketing and uh, just 
is is well liked and admired and and i'm tired and beat up from the street up and you know i'm from the northeast that's a different vibe than in southern california so i just thought it would be a good idea to um step aside and we rebranded part of our business to onyx teams which is it really born from the need of this pandemic that we need to bring people back out and people aren't rushing to go indoors again and so we do a lot of our retreats uh in you know retreat centers out of yurts uh campsites you know we had um atlantic records out in joshua tree you know those people they're looking for something new and different how many times can you go to the marriott and pay ten dollar muffins and do another round of golf the new economy needs something more so if you're thinking, first off, and I teach this with all the CEOs I work with, it's important that you have a mid-year retreat, a mini retreat of some sort, and then an annual retreat, sometimes in the fall. When I was young in business, I would do like my annual planning in February, two months already into the quarter. And then I, and I'm like, well, I'll do it in January this year. And then I learned, you know, really it should be sometime around November or early right. December because you want to hit the deck running. Mm-hmm. And you also want to document your meetings. You want to have your exec team meetings on the calendar a whole year out because Mm -hmm. then it's going to make it a lot easier because you know the first tuesday of every month is the executive retreat uh, executive meeting Mm -hmm. or the third the the second wednesday of every month is going to be your finance to review or your quarterly and when you set out that strategy of meetings your business starts to run almost on its own we know there's a quarterly dinner we know there's a monthly review we know that there's a mid-year retreat and annual strategy and in the annual strategy, you got to come up with that single sentence, a $15 million business with 15% pre-tax profitability with a, you know, a contribution margin of 71%. And then you work your whole business based off those metrics. And it takes so much of the guessing out. Oh. It's all about levers and knobs. It, the, the ability to be predictable in the business is, is it for me is that is my greatest strengths with some of the companies that I help manage is to say, okay, well, are you reactive or proactive? And if, if you're constantly reactive, then you're, you're just spinning your wheels. That's, that's all you are. People ask me all the time, well, how come you're so calm? How come you, you can run seven businesses at a time? I said, cause I'm predictable. I'm predictable in the, in the way that I plan my stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I know what I'm doing nine months in advance. And a typical entrepreneur chases shiny objects. Oh my goodness. Client that comes in. Anybody that's got a heartbeat and a wallet, they're like, we can make it work. But one of the great takeaways that I've learned is the concept of having quotas. And the quota is let's say you sell three different kinds of widgets. Well, you know, you only need to sell 200,000 of these widgets, 100,000 of these widgets, and 50,000 of these widgets. Because if you break out of any one of those quotas, now, all of a sudden, you need a lot more staff, a lot more yeah, investment, right. a lot no whatever. And so you get that predictability by saying, this is all we need to hit. Because if not, we need mid-level management. We need to have a whole new thing in place. And businesses go out of business having too many clients. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Uh, the, the ability to scale up, and I measure everything. People always go, why are you asking so many stupid questions? They don't say stupid, but uh, yeah, because so they, they say, well, you know, why do we need to measure this? Why do we need to measure that? Because I said, when you measure, when you know what to measure everything, when you are building a home, do you measure the space between the fence and your foundation? Do you measure the distance between? You need to triangulate everything. To have a good direction, you need to know where you are and where you come from. So yeah. you can't you can't do a two-dimensional uh, strategic direction. You cannot. You need yeah, to go a great saying, if it can't be measured, it can't be changed. Correct. And if you're not measuring, like I, I always use the scale as the reference. Somebody, some people, which God bless them, they're not me. They're always trying to gain weight. No, I'm trying to put 20 pounds on at the gym. You know, <laughs> I'm 6'1", 210 pounds. I'm not always trying to gain weight, right? I'm trying to <laughs> make my mile faster. But I, I use the scale as a reference. How do you know if you're losing or gaining weight unless you get on the scale? Exactly. If you get on the scale once a week, you'll now have a baseline. But if you add in three workouts a week or 50 extra pounds on the bench, if you can track how much you're benching and you can track how much you weigh on the scale, you're going to see that certain behaviors are going to make it go up and go down. And the same thing with business. One of my first mentors said, businesses aren't about the product or your service. They're not about your team. They're not about your core values. They're not about anything beyond levers and knobs. And what that means is 
Do you crank up the administration a little bit? Do you turn down the overhead a little bit? Do you pull that knob of the expansion? Do you move that back up and cut, cut you know, part of your workforce because you've gone into areas that you have no idea how you even ended up in that realm? And that's basically what it comes down to is that you almost have to be like a scientist working in the lab with your business to really understand that predictability. That, I, you know what, the scientists in the lab, because I always say that there is always correlation and connectivity. Mm-hmm. So if always. you pull on, on one thing, something else will move. So people see things in silos. Oh, sales is not going well. Okay, so why are sales not going? Or marketing, you know, we're not getting the traction that we want. Well, what's the product? So business is simple. Think of a great idea, sell the great idea, make the great idea, get paid for the great idea, right? People overestimate business. They, they don't understand or they don't realize that, you know, when you calculate that if I add 10 to this, well, I need to add two to this. There's always a correlation. And the greatest baseline is time. Everybody's got the same time. You've got 24 hours, unless you have a magical wand that, or, or a magical potion that can make 25 or 26. I'd love to know how to do that. But, you know, everybody's got the same time baseline, which is time. So X over Y over time. That, that's So if I change X, will it change Y over that same period of time? So velocity is the best thing to do. And I, I love that analogy of chemistry. You know, if you, you, every kid who watches TikTok knows that if you put a Mentos now in a bottle of Coke, right? right? So uh, what happens if you put two? What happens if you put three? What happens if there's this kid that put an aquarium full and put a whole bunch of menthols and didn't really do anything. So the experiment is, is key. I, I love that analogy. I think it's yeah, really I've good. I've got another component there for you amazing listeners out there. Don't forget to drink your water. This is an hour long conversation. <laughs> out there. My team, my team used to work so hard. I had to force water breaks because people were just working so hard and you got to have some water. You got to have some get up from your work. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, a business is a series of systems run by a series of people. Correct. And and what I learned is, so initially I wanted to study forestry because I grew up in the woods. I realized I'd be alone. And that Sweet. was no fun. So then I studied social work, but then I realized I'd be an underfunded agency in the city where I ended up. And so I said, well, I want to do outdoor experiential education and facilitation, which was taking the people outdoors and, and connecting the two. And what I learned was, and I, and you hear this throughout all of history, when the seashells on the trading route meet the obsidian, that's when the magic happens. Mm-hmm. When Elon Musk looks at rockets, he's not looking at rockets, he's looking at the propulsion or batteries and solar. You're marrying industries together. And what I discovered when I traveled all around the world was the world is run by people. Mm-hmm. And one of the common themes in almost all of humanity is conflict happens and uh, confusion can occur. And uh, we all have to interact, whether you're going on the subway or unless you're in a hermitage and you're meditating and you're interacting with the great spirit. And most of the time, <laughs> you still got to pull out the rice bowl and, and go to the kitchen and, and, and you know, do your meditations with all your other monks. Um, but that's why I started Positive Adventures and how we go back to this idea of the spirit of business is because that business, which is a series of systems, are run by a series of people. Now, granted, AI is occurring. But ultimately, if you don't look after your people and if you don't take care of them, they won't take care of you. Mm-hmm. And in a broader sense, if you don't look out for your community, then your community won't be there for you. Agreed. And you look at the Amish and their barn raising, or you look at a New England when people are stuck in the snow, complete strangers that they'd never see before. Even Yankees fans will help out a Red Sox fan. You know, <laughs> they, will, they will pull out and say, can I help push you out? Because yeah. that's the spirit of what brings all of us to the point out of pack caves into this place where we can be on the moon and be landing on Mars. And there's something there. And there's something that's not always talked about in business books. And it's really about empowering and engaging everyone around you as the priority, not just the metrics and chewing people and spitting them out. Correct. And through, through education, through storytelling, your employees can do so much more, but you have to provide them the resources and the opportunities for that self-discovery or professional development. You can't just assume they should know everything and be static because mm-hmm. people leave because they don't enjoy their managers or they don't see an opportunity for growth. And millennials and below, they're leaving three years or less. So mm-hmm. you can't get that kind of longevity, which means you're turning into a mill. 
So what you have to do is remember that happiness, long pause for effect, happiness is where purpose and pleasure intersect. <gasps> da, 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 da. Yeah, you have to have something that is not only pleasurable, but purposeful. And I had both on both extremes. I traveled all over. I did all sorts of stuff, but I wasn't really giving back. I was just absorbing. I lived in a group home in Boston. I taught kids that were wards of the state. I was a school teacher in the inner city. But at the end of the day, like, where was my lobster dinner, man? I love lobster. <laughs> but at the end of the day, do combining those forces is where I truly feel at peace and at ease. And you have to ask yourself, my fellow listener friend, are you at ease? Are you living a stressed life? Do you wish it looked different? Do you wish that you had some other way of expressing yourself beyond what you're doing. I had a great friend. He was a chemical engineer. He hated it in college. I said, well, Brian, why are you doing it? My counselor told me it doesn't look good. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you're major. So I talked to him 20 years later, hates his job. He's a, he's a chemical engineer, hates it. Always has hated it. Asked him what he'd rather do. He said, I always wanted to be a history teacher. Like for 20 years, bro, you've been doing something you hated. You have the power, autonomy, and authority to make the change. And maybe some business owners out there are going, you know, I just want to go be a painter. Set up your business so you can go be a painter. Or if you really want to be a history teacher, you don't have to run your business anymore. Yeah. You, I give you permission. Oh, <laughs> parents give you permission. I, you have been blessed to go off and follow your dreams. You want to go to Burning Man for the rest of your life? Get enough sunscreen and go, brother. <laughs> Get enough sunscreen. Oh, that's a good one. I, you know what? The one thing that I always tell you know Simon Sinek does a, such a great job as a forward thinker about creating that circle of safety through his his books and his his speaking and how you know, humans are at the base of measuring both behaviors and systems, right? So when I talk about systemizing a business, it's not just about machines and software. It's about having the right behavior. If I give you a chainsaw and don't educate on how to use a chainsaw, there's more chances that you're going to get hurt than get the job done. So, and then if I give you a spoon or a little hatchet, then you're not going to, you're going to get demoralized, right? So the purpose and your happiness is really key. The power of morale, and people underestimate that in cre by creating a circle of safety. If morale is the desire of a person to achieve a goal, or a person or a group of people to achieve a certain goal, and if morale is not good, some people call it company culture. I, I it's I I think that culture is completely different than morale. And if people come to work enthused and wanting to help. Like you said, push you through the snow. Hey, Ryan's having a hard time with his marketing strategy. Okay, so you know what? I, I'm i just going to say, hey, Ryan, how can I help? Mm -hmm. Right? How can I help? I'm not a marketing specialist, but hey, is there any way that I can help? And that oxytocin, so we can get into actually biology, the four key chemicals, like oxytocin that we're talking about, the love chemical, the hug chemical, the chemical serotonin, that, dopamine. That's all right. And so oxytocin is built by, I played rugby for 30 years. So, you know, you can go to any other rugby club in the world and they'll accept you as their own. I was in the army for 10 years. I can talk to somebody who else was in the service and they understand. I speak the same lingo and understand because we built that oxytocin within those groups. Nowadays, and through the pandemic, I think is important as well. How do you rebuild that oxytocin? How do you rebuild that work hard, play hard? together that creates that community within the organization where morale is elbow to elbow shoulder to shoulder we shall march on right and that is that is difficult that that is not an easy thing to do through the pandemic either yeah let me drop a couple truth bombs on that system boom s-t-e-m -S system saves you stress time energy and money s-y-s-t-e-m <gasps> Can I, can I can I copyright that? Can you, you know, can I, I, I use it? Saves <laughs> you stress, time, energy, and money. Now, what, how you work with morale. Now, I like to look at ancient thinkers. There was business consultants back in ancient India 7,000 years ago. 
Uh, they talked about how the, the fish was too hard to grab a hold of. The deer was always bouncing around too often. The <laughs> eagle was always looking down on everybody. You know, that, there's those writings out there. So Sun Tzu, author of The Art of War. There's two stories that talk about morale that stood out when I read that book when I was 13. The first was there was a, a group who was completely and entirely outnumbered. And so what the general did is he said, they're out there desecrating all of your family's cemeteries. They're destroying your ancestors' resting place. Now, this is war, mind you. So that invoked and ignited something in the outnumbered bunch, that one out there, and freaking went nuts, right? They were like, BS, we're going to go out there and school these fools, and then they did. Secondarily, in relating to morale, uh, in relating to competition, there was another time where a group was, another army was intensely outnumbered. And what they did is the scouts said, hey, look, you know, we're so incredibly outnumbered. And so what the general said is he said, have every third person build their own fire. Back then, you would look on the hill and you would see the size of the army by the size of the fires. Correct. Because, you know, you can only have five or six, eight people around a fire. But what they did is they made hundreds of additional fires, which then made it appear that they were much bigger, which created fear in the competition. So, and similarly, you hear about the burning of the boats. The army lands. Mm -hmm. As soon as they land, they burn the boats. And they say, all right, boys, well, we got to have to go finish business. There's no ride home, you know? So it's forcing you to do better. Now, my next point is when in... I've been working with groups and teams and businesses all across the world for 20 plus years, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, been on stage with thousands. And this is the one thing that I've learned more often than anything else. When you create opportunities for moments of service, it releases the chemicals that make them want to keep doing it. Now, right. it could be something as simple as uh, an appreciation award. You appreciate somebody, but they can only have that award for a week. But the only rule is when they give it to somebody else, they have to share with the team why that award is on, you know, Joan's desk. Mm -hmm. And so Joan gets that award and then, you know, a week goes by or three days goes by and then she puts it on Elijah's desk and shares with the team. Elijah was there for me. My car needed a jump. That's just such a great spirit of being a decent human being. Now, Elijah's got it. What happens? Everybody at the office goes, man, I want the award. Yeah. How, how can I get, woo, I brought in donuts for everybody. <laughs> like, I got super days. What do you need? And so that really creates the spirit. Or it could be something as a, a monthly cleanup. Yeah. You know, there's a grind at the office. The proposals are coming in. Nobody's saying people don't work really hard and grind out and have to stay late. But people are be more apt to do that. If they're actually going down and, and giving blood or feeding puppies or doing a beach cleanup, and there's someone right now going, I'm bleeding heart liberal, make money. That's fine too. That's your spirit. Um, but we learned through all those tales that, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, he got schooled. You know, like there are people <laughs> in stories and tales that teach us that greed alone is not enough to fulfill you. And when you die, you don't get to carry anything back. But, you know, we've got, Aristotle and Socrates and Plato in my bookshelf because they were great thinkers and they gave us a gift, you know? So that's, that's the spirit that keeps it going. And when your team is motivated and they are empowered, they are unstoppable. Just my, my grandfather with this thick brogue accent, Highland accent, would say all the time, hey, don't you ever chase about money because you'll never find it. Work hard. Money will find you. Yep. And, and that is in a saying, just given the proper ethic, right? So if you're chasing money, and I did for a little bit, I went through the ranks and I was chasing money. And when I hit the top, I was like, hey, what do I do now? Yeah, it's not uh, always that cool. Some, right? of the, some of the lamest times is when I had some of the easiest goes. But I'll share a real quick story that my dad taught me. Um, my dad told me he was building a bridge to go to this house. And um, basically, um, he, he saw the gentleman that lived there and he said, hey, you know, he was like 15 or something working on this thing, cleaning off the logs. And he said, how did you get this house? He said, it's real simple, boy. It only took me a turkey and a ham. He said, well, what do you mean? 
And he said, every Thanksgiving, I bought every person on my team a turkey. And every Christmas, I gave time off and I always gave everybody a ham. And it showed that the worker, that I cared about them, that I was interested in them, and they cared back and, and cared for me. And when my dad told me that back when I was maybe 30 years old, I bought a turkey for every one of my employees. I don't even eat meat half the time. <laughs> and I'm buying a turkey for every single employee that I've ever had. And I still have one employee who hasn't worked for me for eight years, Katie. She still sends me a receipt and I still pay for her family turkey. I'm like... <laughs> Wow, eight years. She just keeps doing it. I just keep doing it. But you know what? She built my company. She made me who I was. Now, to multiply that, one year, I said, okay, everybody, Thanksgiving's coming up. Just send in your receipts for the turkey. And uh, Abby walks up to me and she says, uh, boss, we've made a decision where none of us are actually going to get a turkey. And I said, oh, why not? Is this like, you know, plant over process? Are we going to Whole Foods now? Should I get a tofurkey? Want me to send you some <laughs> lettuce? Where do you want to be with this? And she said, no, uh, because my husband is deployed in Iraq, we're going to send all of the turkeys that each of us would have got. And they're going to go to the servicemen and women uh, that are stationed in Iraq. Goosebumps. Years Dude. ago, I still get goosebumps telling that story. Dude. Because I provided an opportunity of giving back. They showed an opportunity of giving back more. And it and freaking warms my soul, man. That is worth more to me than having some fancy watch. You I know, the, the highlights of my career were not the contracts that I closed. But when I worked with a group of children that had HIV and AIDS, and at first I was nervous and hesitant. Three minutes off the bus, I was right in the mix. We were having a great time. They circled me up. They had me stand. And this was on the 4th of July. They didn't have any money. And I had to ask my staff to volunteer their 4th of July, which is an American holiday. And um, basically, they sang us a thank you song. And we as staff wept. We cried holding each other. That is the spirit of business. Because I could have been at the beach partying. I could have been buying fireworks and having a barbecue with my friends. But we gave up that opportunity. And we provided something else for somebody else. And that's why I do what I do and teach other people to do it. Because if a, a, a numbskull, harebrained New Englander who's stoic, who has no feelings or emotions, who runs into brick walls and gets up and says, let's do it again, can feel, then imagine the people who are truly empathetic and deeply connected that do that and are awakened to it. You know, my whole life, feelings had been conditioned out of us because New England is harsh. It's a harsh location. It's negative 20 all the time. It's freezing cold. You have to be rugged. But there were so many acts of giving back then that I wasn't aware of them. And now I'm able to teach them and it makes a difference. Thank you for listening. I'll be here all day. <laughs> Thank you. That's, I think the, the ultimate kind of wraparound of all of this, when I, after listening to you, the spirit of business and I, I, the equation, because I—that's what I do, right? I—I I, I equate everything. How do how do I get this? How do I do this every day? How do I translate that vision into frontline operations and where happiness meets purpose? Like I like that—that's new for me, and it's an education educational moment for me because it is true. The spirit of business is how do you, as the leader, have happiness and purpose. And show and disseminate that same behavior to everybody else. That's right. And happiness is where purpose and pleasure intersect. Because you can do purposeful things and become hollow. And you can do pleasurable things and become hollow. But when you learn to do pleasurable things that have purpose, and you can apply that to anything. I mean, you might be working a factory job where all you do is pull down a handle every day. But if you actually volunteer at the, uh, you, you know, the local old folks home because you get off of work at two and you spend or just coach the baseball there, team or just coach yeah. the baseball team. Yeah. Like any one of those components, you can say, you know, I'm happy that I have this job, which provides me this opportunity to volunteer and have this time. It doesn't always have to be all in the exact same moment. Yeah. Uh, but the more we give, the more we get, they got the book, the go giver on that. And, you know, it's, uh, it can be counterintuitive. It really can be. You know, when I was first starting my business, I gave away all of my products and services in certificates to nonprofits, then sold it um, at their auctions and their dinners. 
And so somebody else was paying the nonprofit for mm-hmm. it, but then a client was calling me up. So my cost per client acquisition was actually them paying me because mm-hmm. I was giving all of them away. And so I was ending up on newsletters and my whole couple first years of business, anytime a charity asked me for anything, I always gave my product and service away mm-hmm. because I would give them a $2,000 leadership training for their staff. They'd sell it to a biotech for a thousand bucks. The biotech would call me, but it was only good for 20. They'd have 28. I'd add the markup for the eight. Then they'd become longtime clients and they were perpetuating because of all of this giving and giving back. So you don't always have to dump millions of dollars into your media campaigns. Earned media is real. You know, when, when you do something and the papers write up about it, it has more meaning and value to it than I just paid a cost per click to get, you know, this cold lead to come in. Whereas, you know, when you're volunteering on nonprofit boards, you're usually around titans of industry uh, who have enough money that they don't actually have to work. And that's why they're volunteering to probably leave some legacy. And that's where you can really make a lot of great business contacts. Because you're both there giving back. And don't get me wrong, my company does millions of dollars oh, in business. Pe- you know, people, my house people, is on the ocean, but I'm still giving back. The, people forget that... It, it, being kind doesn't mean being poor. You don't have to be a monk. You don't have to give up everything. It's the opposite. The more you give, the more you get. Yeah. And I always look for opportunities. We're doing renovations in my house and these two guys came in and they picked up my dishwasher and dryers and stuff like that and came in right polite, good young men, you know, working hard, sweating, truck full of appliances, loaded it up. And they said, oh, you'll get a survey from us. Would you be so kind? I said, absolutely. So they're loading up, walk up, and gave them 20 bucks each. And I, I, I'm not saying that donations is the way to give all the time. These young men, I know what it is. They worked hard. They were polite. I'm sure that the company they work for probably doesn't do that. Did I make their day? And I didn't even think about it twice, right? I just, I had the cash, gave it to them, and it made me feel good. Yeah, that reminds me of two great stories. So my brother, Jimmy, he came home one day. He was a cook in the kitchen down by the water uh, in a tourist part of town. And he had a $50 bill and he flashed it in my face and he was beaming and glowing. My brother, Jimmy, was always pretty ornery. You know, he was not the coolest brother. I mean, he was a great guy, but he was always like, Rrr. and uh, I'd never seen him so excited. And I said, whoa, what's that about? And he said, the boss came in and gave everybody a $50 bill. Woo! I mean, this is like in the 80s, man. Oh, like yeah, 50 bucks. Like was like... $500 bill, you know? <laughs> and I remember even when I was like seven, I said to myself, I want to be that kind of boss. And I have always walked in and given my staff cash bonuses, typically in $2 bills because they're gigantic. And, who doesn't <laughs> bill? and I'll dump a bag of money on someone's desk. You know, it's a couple hundred bucks. But I'm like, you deserve it. Like, go go out and head to dinner. Go get those new tires. Go go get what you need to do. And so there's a great piece there. Um, and then the other thing is I completely forgot about the second part of the story because I was just thinking, who do I need to give some cash to? Because that's a- <laughs> <laughs> It'll come to me. I'll cut you off somewhere in the middle. Uh, it's yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, there so, we go. There we go. There we go. Yeah. So I'm 18 years old. Me and my brother started a painting company. I graduated high school. I drove straight across the country to paint for the summer to try to save up to make some money for college. And, you know, you paint some people's houses and they look down on you. They don't want you in the house. They don't want you around. They give you this kind of skeptical eye the whole time. And you're like, yeah, I'm an 18 year old kid. I'm painting your outside. Am I going to steal your chrysanthemums out of the front yard? Like, give me a break, you know? But there was this one um, woman that lived in the house. And, you know, even though we would bring sandwiches or whatever, I think she noticed that I was just uh, eating like white bread with a little Tabasco and an egg. Nothing very fancy. You know, we didn't have a lot of money and we were trying mm-hmm. to make it, you know. And she would just come out quietly and leave a couple of extra sandwiches and a couple of cold cans of soda. And Damn. she said, I hope the boys have a good day. And we'd go back and go back inside. We would put like extra coats of paint on there. <laughs> I'm fluffing up the lawn where I was standing. You know, I was like, you, you know, telling her profusely how amazing she was because she wasn't looking at us like as the, with a skeptical eye. She, she saw our humanity. And that's what my boss taught me. My first boss taught me about the yoga and the green juice, and the meditation. He said, work on it like it's your mom's house. 
Yeah. And that simple little thought was like, you know, I mean, I don't know how some people probably have very complicated relationships with their mom, you know, and I understand that, but, <laughs> um, you know, work on it. Like it's your mom's house. It's just like my first boss. When I had a, I, I worked at a pizza place when I was 15, he said, build the pizza like you want it. And yeah. like, I love mushroom pizza. Right. So I'm, I'm pouring mushrooms <laughs> all over the pizza. Right. And so, so one day I look over at the kid, this other kid, and he put like six mushrooms on there. And I'm like, hey, what's the deal there? There's only six mushrooms. He goes, I hate mushrooms. mushrooms. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And then I said exactly what my boss said to me, because that's the spirit of transference. You know, yeah. storytelling. I said, well, what's your favorite pizza? And he said, pepperoni. And I said, put the mushrooms on and pretend they're pepperonis. And let me see what the pizza looks like. Thing was covered in buckets <laughs> of the floor. So, you know, that's what we need more of. More oh, of that yeah, 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 mentorship, yeah. leadership, guidance, support. And to do more than what we've been conditioned to do because it's been beaten out of us to not look out for someone else. Oh, don't give that homeless man a dollar. He'll he'll become a drunk. Well, what are you doing at the local? You know, you're complaining about homeless people. Are you going to the shelter? Are you doing a closed drive? Can you do a resume building? All you're doing is complaining about the homeless people you have to pass in your community. Have you got to know one of them? Maybe they're a mathematician that could be your outsourced fractional CFO. You just haven't given them a chance because you're judging them. <laughs> you don't know. You uh, dude, to I've got <laughs> stories to tell about that. But uh, yeah, I mean, we. I think we're Ryan. We're gonna have to do a part two on this one because there's just oh, gonna be part seventeen, man. Let's <laughs> baby. We're, we're living the dream. All right, two questions. All right, so the first one is uh, as we wrap things up here, leaders are learners, not necessarily readers. But you are a Renaissance reader. What is the one book piece of information that you say was the most powerful in your career? And then the second component of that, the second part is, what are you working on now? Okay. Okay. So it's a two-part question because I have some Libra as part of my astrological sign. Um, the book that really changed my life was Paramahansa Yogananda's Autobiography of a Yogi. And it was Steve Jobs' only book that he ever had on an iPad. It was the book that the, the Beatles, um, you know, really related to as their level of success. And it's, and it's also the book that my first mentor who taught me about yoga and green juice and meditation um, guided me towards. And he said that it was a bit of a framework to understand your place. And it was the science of religion. If you didn't buy into religion or you lost your religion, this was more so about the physiological response of the experience that you can have. And we touched on some of the biohacking and the dopamine, mm -hmm. things like that. But secondarily, the backside to that is the practical side. And that's Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits by Greg Crabtree. Greg Crabtree writes in a very folksy, farmy style and makes uh, finance and the books easily digestible. He, he uses, uh, you know, valleys of the death and how the Patriots did their winning. And it makes it very simple. And I would say for the business owner out there, there's many of us who don't truly have a firm comprehension of the way the books really work. We pay somebody to deal with the books. But simple number, straight talk, big profit. Um, was really um, uh, a welcoming home party to my level of professionalism as a CEO because it really helped organize it on that tangible sense because I spent so much time out there on the, the visionary metaphysical sense. And what am I doing next? Besides picking up my daughter on her first day of in-person school, whoop, whoop. which is pretty awesome. I think you're going to get a little frozen yogurt and stop <laughs> by Bed Bath & Beyond if there's enough time. Uh, no. Uh, so I rebranded my corporate division into Onyx Teams, and we're focusing a lot more on the outdoor experiential components for businesses. Uh, I really want to see more people engaging in the nature setting because yeah. that in itself the Japanese talk about forest bathing, where mm -hmm. just being out of doors or being near uh, trees can do something for you physiologically. And I'm really trying to heal myself and humanity. And I feel that it is my calling and my birthright. Uh, my mother was a healer, you know, as a nurse for all of those years. I, I want to see more businesses treat their employees in a holistic way to 
empower them and engage them to focus on their own dreams and to help them reach that uh, so that we can see a, a broader, deeper, loving, more understanding community. It is, there is so much shenanigans out there. We got people chanting on both sides of the streets, throwing rocks at each other, and they're both American citizens, you know? I know so we need to take a step back. We need to bring love back into the equation. We need to talk about love in a productive sense. Uh, and we need to stop all the division. And that's what I'm doing every day. There needs to be a lot more healing, healing of the humans, healing of the planet. There just needs to be a lot more healing across the world. So yeah, make love popular again. That's my new slogan. Dude, Going on a bumper sticker. When did when did a handshake and a hug, you know, become you know something of said sexual connotation or, or discrimination is just beyond me. So, anyways, um, with that being said, Ryan, thank you very much for introducing the spirit of business as the title of our show. It's, uh, I think people are going to say, "What? That's it? You guys have just been talking for an hour and what 15, 20 minutes now? Keep going, keep going." Okay, uh, so if Ryan's good for it, maybe we'll do a part two. Uh, on that one. So with that being said, thank you very much, Ryan, for being on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. It has been a high pleasure and distinct honor to share your time with me. And if anybody out there wants to connect with me, Ryan at positiveadventures.com, adventures with an S, feel free to reach out. Uh, if you shoot me an email, I'll send you a note. Let's just have a chat. We'll have a call. We'll go for a walk. We'll spin a yarn. We'll have some <laughs> good times, whatever it needs to be. I'm a friend of many and a lover to all. And I can't wait for round two. I don't even think I'll be able to sleep. I'm so excited, brother. <laughs> With that said, thank you very much, Ryan. My name is Martin Hunter. I am the host of What CEOs Talk About, where we translate strategy into front. Oh, I always forget my marketing team is going to kill me. Like, I can't even remember what I have to say. Please Yo, like, subscribe. Right? Yeah, 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 click on this, click on that. Ah, crap, you guys know what to do. I don't need to tell you. All right. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening and or watching. And then we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you very much, Ryan. Toodaloo, friends. Thanks for tuning in to What CEOs Talk About. Make sure to click subscribe to get notified about future episodes or check us out at www.whatceostalkabout.com.